Today on CityCast DC, it's been a brutal month for DC area restaurants with a bunch of favorite eateries going out of business. What's going on? Why now? We're talking to the man behind the Eat DC Twitter account to get the lay of the land. Today is Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Hey, David. Hey. So I feel like every day this summer, I hear about another prominent DC spot that's closing. What do you think have been the biggest losses? There's been quite a few closings recently and quite a few big names too. I think the one that kind of kicked things off in a bad way was when Bad Saint announced that they were closing. And they were really a, a nationally known restaurant that opened up a new cuisine to the area and were like really important for adding some dynamism to the dining scene. Just for people who couldn't get to the front of the line, tell them what Bad Saint was, uh, what it brought to the region. It was like this small Filipino restaurant. I think they had 22 seats. And a lot of people didn't know what Filipino cuisine probably was when they opened. And they really introduced this cuisine in kind of um, a bold way. It was a high energy restaurant that brought out lines of people. You know, another Rose's Luxury kind of place where you had to line up before they opened to get a spot. And so their 22 seats were filled every night. And then for the pandemic, they closed down and they actually never reopened their indoor space. They tried to do takeout for a while and that just wasn't going to be a long-term solution. And they ended up closing. So it was a pretty, pretty renowned place. I think they were, I forget which list, maybe Bon Appetit, one of the top 10 new restaurants in the country the year that they opened. What are some of the other closings that resonated with you? One of the other ones that, I know sparked a lot of attention was when Rappahannock Oyster Bar announced they were closing in Union Market. And they were one of the uh, original vendors there and something that really helped build that scene. So they were like a vendor of oysters that graduated into a restaurant? Yeah, I don't, I think they started maybe as a oyster wholesaler and then became a restaurant selling their own oysters. But it was, you know, a oyster bar with wine and a whole, um, a whole sort of scene in, in an area that didn't have much of a scene at the time. And then the one that kind of hurt me because I had just gone there a couple of weeks before they announced it was when uh, Magpie and the Tiger closed, which was kind of a Korean-ish restaurant in Petworth, another small space, and that was really putting out amazing cuisine. So that's just three of quite a few, but those are the ones that come to mind as kind of the big name closures that we've heard of recently. There was a lot of stuff in the sort of depths of the pandemic about this is about the disaster and the, uh, of the dining industry and the pain inflicted on the employees there. But why is this is this spate of closings happening now at a time when a lot more people are going out? There's a lot more ease and freedom and so on. Yeah, I guess it, that's always like such a simple question with such a complicated, probably not very clear answer. Um, my favorite kind of answer. <laughs> I guess I'll start with that. A lot of closings typically happen around the end of the summer. It's a slow time in D.C. when Congress leaves. A lot of the staff that works for Congress leaves. And so a lot of restaurants try to see if they can make it through that tough period. And some of them just find that they can't. I would say like this is not an atypical year for closings around the end of summer. But it is an atypical year in that like 
It's another year of dealing with pandemic challenges, with supply chain challenges and inflation that really came on this year. So it's adding some additional challenges to restaurants that were already probably struggling. But yeah, it's just like every restaurant closes for different reasons. But at the end of the day, it always comes down to money. Like you're just not making enough money. And a bunch of places had their rent deferred during the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah. Like different people got through in different ways. One of them was having their landlords defer their rents, meaning they could pay it at a later time. Some actually got their rent maybe absolved for a, a period of time. But some restaurants it looked like they were making it, but they were really just piling up their debt. And eventually that's going to catch up to you if you're not making way more money than you did before. So yeah, the math just doesn't add up at the end of the day for a lot of places. And this is a tough industry at any time. And I imagine people are just tired right now. Yeah, I think in pre-pandemic times, the margins were something like 8%, I think, was the average for profit. Um, so for some places, a bad month can put you out of business. And now with all the additional challenges with inflation, with staffing, you still have all the lingering effects of pandemic on restaurants. There's still, like you say, not just deferred rent, but deferred all sorts of um, costs. It really can wear people down. I mean, the pandemic was an extremely challenging time for restaurants, one of the only industries that mostly stayed open other than medical facilities during all this. And so they really took the brunt of a lot of people's uh, pent-up anger, emotions, hostilities. And a lot of people, you know, frontline workers left the industry because of that. And a lot of owners and managers had to suck it up a lot of times and try to deal with it to keep their businesses going. But at the end of the day, it's all just people and you can only deal with so much. So I think for sure there's a lot of burnout. The brand new Arbor at Tacoma is built for your most convenient urban living. Whether you want to enjoy the vibrant Tacoma DC community or comfortably retreat into a sleek sanctuary all your own. The kitchens have striking dark navy and white cabinets, and throughout the home, there are wood floors and smart home technology. Some homes even have a private outdoor space. With a quick walk to the metro, you can easily head into downtown or stay close and enjoy the retail that's on site. Located at 218 Cedar Street Northwest, the Arbor Tacoma offers brand new one and two bedroom condos starting in the upper 300,000s. Visit thearborattacoma.com for more information. That's Tacoma with a K. So T-H-E-A-R-B-O-R-A-T-T-A-K-O-M-A.com. So you said uh, people left the industry. So this is sort of like a, a culinary version of the Great Resignation, that's what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's always been hard to find the talents and staff you need to open a restaurant, even more so with the pandemic. Some people left at the beginning because why would you risk your life to do a low-paid, difficult job that was already hard before you had to you know, uh, risk contracting COVID? Because remember, restaurant kitchens are tight compact spaces. And these people that were keeping restaurants open were still going to tight compact spaces when we knew that that was not a safe thing to do. And a lot of people felt that they their employers weren't really looking after their well-being. And for some who could, they found other work that didn't seem as dangerous. So if I had an economist on, uh, they would say, well, if, if you're having trouble finding workers and it's a low-pay industry, maybe you should just pay more. Um, why can't they just do that so easily? 
I think you saw a lot of them actually did. Taco Bell was advertising like $16 an hour. They were starting to pay more than like daycare workers. So you started having like shifts from other industries too. But big companies can eat those costs in some ways and they can build that in without increasing their cost by a lot. Smaller independent restaurants, you more directly see the cost of increased labor immediately. So if you have to pay your staff more, you have to increase your menu costs to make up for that. And restaurants, they feel like you can only only raise your prices so high before you start driving away business. So it's a really difficult balancing act. There's been some articles recently about how restaurants and businesses have been competing for talent by offering perks that the restaurant industry didn't typically provide, ones that maybe you or I would think are normal, like health insurance and time off and things like that. Wow, what a perk. Yeah, exactly. But um, these are things that the restaurant entry workers have gone without for most of their career and for most of the time. Like This was typically not a very glamorous industry, no matter how it looks on TV. So we're starting to see that change a little bit. But again, it's like it's all up to how much the restaurant owners and those businesses can offer while still making a profit. I would imagine for some of the places we've talked about, though, like Bad Saint that had people around the block uh, at its peak and uh, DBGB, there has got to be quite a lot of price elasticity in the menus. I mean, these are places that cater to people with a good deal of discretionary income, yeah? Yeah, I think um, those two places in particular probably closed for very different reasons. I think Bad Saint closed because I think they weren't really comfortable opening and they thought maybe people wouldn't be comfortable coming back. I think people probably would have been based on what I'm seeing in the dining scene. But I think at the end of the day, maybe they didn't feel comfortable opening. So I'm not sure the pricing really has too much to do with their closing. And with DBGB, I mean, Daniel Blue from New York City, his only place in DC, like how much attention is he really paying when he's got kind of an empire? And in that area with the competition and with... I don't know how many people City Center gets just walking through these days, but I'm guessing that it's less than it was before. And I'm also guessing that they probably didn't lower their rent too much, that you're going to see some casualties. So like I said, like every restaurant closes for a different reason. It's always kind of unlimited amount of factors all moving in different directions. And other pieces like the landlords, like some landlords are good, some landlords suck. And uh, when you ask like... Why does one place close and one place doesn't? Like someone might have just had a good landlord. Like it might have nothing to do with like how good they were as a restaurant. So there's just so many pieces of the puzzle and so many people with their hands in it. That's why it's like hard to say like, why are restaurants closing? It's like, I don't know. Like I asked one restaurant, why? what happened? They said they couldn't even tell me. They didn't even know. So you can't really nail it to one thing. But another thing to remember is that restaurants close every year. And we can kind of be like, oh, a bunch of restaurants have closed recently. It must be because the pandemic is finally having an impact. I think in some ways that's definitely true. And in some ways, maybe that's not so true. Like DBGB might've been one of those restaurants that was going to close no matter what. Well, right. And you know, there's a way you can look at it and say it's a sign of a healthy uh, dining ecosystem, that cool stuff comes online, things get tired, the market is ruthless, but it does ultimately uh, weed out low performers. And uh, we diners at least should all be so glad about this because in a place without the dynamic scene, a bunch of places would stay open that maybe shouldn't. That's an interesting way to think about it. I don't know. I guess um, if that was the case, though, then a place like Bad Saint or Magpie and the Tiger wouldn't have to close at all, right? Because to me, Magpie and the Tiger was like one of the best meals I had all year. They just couldn't get enough people every single night to keep the doors open. Um, 
So, wait, do you what? Do you have a sense? I mean, just to follow up on that because that's a super good point. Whether the closings have anything to do, in your estimation, with the actual quality of the place from a dining point of view? Like sometimes yes, and sometimes no. So there's no like direct correlation across the board. No, I mean, like there's a bunch of restaurants that I would think are crappy that stay open because <laughs> other people don't think they're crappy, right? There's not like one dining public. And that's something that like a lot of professional food people probably like don't focus on that much. Like there's a reason why Taffer's Tavern is opening downtown, why Gordon Ramsay is opening three restaurants in DC, why Green Turtle is coming back to DC right across the street from a pink taco from LA. Like there's plenty of chains with lots of money that think that they can get enough people to come to their restaurants, even if other people might think their food is crap. Or do you think they're right? Well, I went by Green Turtle the other night and it was packed. So they might be right. So let me ask you, how do you, I don't know what your, um, you know, you have this mysterious uh, Twitter feed. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what your process is. Like, do you, uh, in addition to eating, which is the fun part, I imagine, do you actually go out and like talk to owners and workers in the industry and so on? And if you do, how are they all feeling right now? Yeah, the eating comes first. The talking usually comes second, but it stems from the same interest. And a lot of times I just reach out to restaurant owners and say, hey, what's going on with this restaurant that you're working on? And through that, I've developed some relationships with people. And so occasionally we chat about, you know, like you're asking, how are things going? And I would say I'm getting a lot more feedback these days that it's really rough and that a lot of people don't realize that it's how rough it really is. No one really wants to say that publicly because if you're like, man, we're struggling, then people might not want to go to a struggling place. It's kind of like, do you want to go to a restaurant that seems like it's thriving or a restaurant that doesn't seem like it's thriving? A lot of restaurants that look like they're thriving, their financials might not be. And it's just compounded by a lot of the problems that we've talked about, the high cost of all inputs and the challenges to get staffing and the availability of supplies and all those things added together just make things really hard. I'm, you know, life might be easier now, but for restaurants, I'm being told that it's even harder than it was last year or the year before. Let me ask you the longer term question. What, what do you think this means, if anything, for where the dining scene in the DC area is going more broadly? I've been thinking about this for a while to be like, okay, well, if we're going to have these challenges that remain, what is that going to lead to in the dining scene? And what I was thinking was that we're going to see more places that kind of scale back on their staffing, that try to look for different ways to put out quality food, but with the limitations of what they have. And so I thought we were going to have more places like Chico where you order at the counter and they bring it to your table, but you get amazing quality food. But I haven't really seen too many places going that. In fact, we've seen places go the opposite direction on more tasting menus to be able to control their costs instead of changing the way they do business to lower their costs. So I'm not really sure, but then going back to Taffer's Tavern, I don't want to talk about too much, too many times in one interview, but the way that they plan to make money is by cooking most of their food off-site and finishing it in a kitchen so you don't have to have people who went to culinary school. You just need people who know how to follow certain steps. And that's how they're going to lower the cost of staffing, both in terms of the experience and the number of staff. And I think that at that sort of level, at like a chain level, you'll probably see other people's copy that. I don't think you can really provide the quality food that a lot of people want from a more sophisticated dining experience that way. 
So I, I really think that you're going to have to change the way that you actually offer food. I was actually in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago and I went to this amazing restaurant where instead of having someone come to your table and take your order, they welcome you, they pour your water and they say, go order at the bar. And you order at the bar, they give you a number and then the food comes out. And this is still high quality, innovative, interesting food, but you only have two people working like 30 tables where you might have six or seven people. And so if you were counting on being pampered, you should maybe not count on that. Yeah, that's another thing is that I think there's going to be more of a stratification. I think the people who want to get pampered will be getting more pampered, but you're going to see like more of these fine dining restaurants separate themselves from the rest of the pack in terms of how much they cost, in terms of the services they provide to be able to make it more of an experience worth your money. I think you're going to have less of the middle, which we already don't have a ton of in DC, where you can go out and have a pretty good meal for what most people consider a reasonable amount of money. I'm not sure what, where that leaves like the bulk of restaurants, because a lot of people are still trying to fight to maintain the status quo that we're used to in, in dining out. Do you get the sense the situation in the DC area is roughly the same as in similar, sophisticated, big city regions? Honestly, like I think that DC actually is pretty well off compared to other places. And that's, I think, probably hard for people to hear, especially the restaurant owners who feel like, damn, this is so hard. Like when I went to Pittsburgh, like sandwich shops won't even let you sit inside because they can't find one person to clean the tables. Every single window had a help wanted sign. And there's other cities, like, you know, I was in New York a couple months ago and the places that are open seem like they're doing well, but you still have a lot of empty storefronts in a way that DC doesn't really have because so many people left New York or moved out of New York to permanently or temporarily to work somewhere else. So with all of the struggles that we see in the DC dining scene, I think comparatively, we're actually pretty well off, which um, maybe isn't a great thing if you're looking at what's the future of restaurants nationwide. David, thank you so much for coming. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. And now for some quick news. I'm here with our audio producer, Julia. What's happening, Julia? To start, we finally have an update on the Politics and Pros Union. They've ratified their first union contract with the help of UFCW Local 400, who typically help food and commercial workers. They're the first bookstore in the district to unionize and to reach a contract. If you're wondering what's in that contract, it covers 50 workers across all of the branches, so everywhere from Connecticut Avenue to the wharf, and includes better pay and scheduling. Congrats, guys. Meanwhile, the five PG County Orange Line stations, you know, the ones that were closed all summer, they're open again. Thank God. The new stations now have non-slip tiles, digital passenger information screens, LED lighting, improved security cameras, better speakers for announcements, and new platform shelters with power outlets. Very excited for the fancy new upgrades. Now, today in Helping Your Neighborhood Thrive, Capitol Hill residents banded together to save Mott's Market, which is a local corner shop that has served as a gathering place for that community for years. The group of around 30 investors who range from past residents to filmmakers to Fed workers to retirees raised $1.35 million, so much money, <laughs> to buy the building that housed the market. I guess I'll have to swing by at some point when I'm at Capitol Hill. 
And finally, we're working on an episode about DC's favorite satirical newsletter, Cherry Swamp. Check out their work and then leave us a voicemail with your favorite headline and why. I know I've got a couple that make me giggle every time I see them. Our phone number is 202-642-2654. And who knows, you might get to hear yourself right here on the pod very, very soon. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Michael Shaver from Politico. Please be sure to check out our newsletters for more stories. You can subscribe at our website. And if you like what you're hearing and reading, tell a friend, rate us on the podcast player of your choice, and reach out to us. Our email is dc at citycast.fm, and you can leave us a voicemail at 202-642-2654. We'll be back tomorrow morning. Bye. I am so sweaty because I had to close my windows because it's so nice out, but like, my God, this thing traps heat like you wouldn't believe.